Welcome to episode 87 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we are here at 104 uh, Broad Street at the Christ Church offices, and I'm here with my uh, dear friends, uh, Gabriel Williams and Michael Bauer. And uh, how are you guys doing today? Doing well. Pretty good, pretty good. Wonderful. The sun is shining, the weather has cooled off. It's yes. uh, no longer 130 degrees in Charleston, it's only down to 110, I think. So that's good. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, we are here uh, today to talk about uh, somewhat of a, a sobering uh, topic, um, uh, and uh, I wanted to lead off by uh, explaining to our listeners that once a year I get together with a group of uh, pastors uh, who are very dear friends. We have five or six guys that are part of the core of this group where we meet for prayer, accountability, and uh, some leadership uh, discussions, uh, particularly led by Pastor Harry Reeder of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, we all always invite uh, two or three other pastors to come along with us every year. Uh, different years, we'll have different men that we'll invite in order to encourage them and build them up in the Lord and encourage them in their ministries. And we always meet in a place where there are um, historical sites mm-hmm. uh, in order to learn from past leaders and uh, past history. How can we apply some of these things to our own ministries today and our own leadership principles? Uh, last year, for instance, we went to Philadelphia and studied the Founding Fathers and mm-hmm. various aspects of the Revolutionary War and leadership principles there. Uh, this past year, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, we met uh, in Birmingham and Montgomery and Tuskegee, and we walked basically the Civil Rights Trail. And uh, being from uh, Northern California uh, uh, and uh, uh, not really having had uh, racism be something that was a part of my own uh, experience. I, I grew up in a very multicultural, multi-ethnic environment in Northern California. And so coming to the South was a new experience in, in many ways. And I saw from the outset uh, of my time at Clemson racism, and it was a bit shocking to me. But, you know, being uh, caught up in, in sports and busyness and all of that, um, uh, I didn't necessarily learn all that I could have learned about it or responded in the way that I could have responded to it. And uh, over the years, of course, uh, I have um, made it very clear how uh, wicked racism is. But I'll have to confess, it wasn't until uh, a few weeks ago, visiting some of these historical sites, that um, that I really even begun, and I'll pretend to understand it all, but begun to really understand uh, the depths of the wickedness of racism. And uh, I, I walked through these sites, uh, wiping tears from my eyes. Um, I could hardly believe some of the things I was reading and seeing and hearing. We had two black reformed pastors with us along on this trip. Uh, I did not know them before this trip and uh, they are wonderful godly men who were able to talk to us about their own experience and working through uh, this history and their relationships with uh, white people uh, in, in our day and age. And uh, it has helped me to realize how ridiculous a lot of the rhetoric is amongst white people about this, not, not properly identifying the pain uh, that is underneath, right underneath the surface of many black brothers and sisters in Christ and black neighbors uh, in general. And uh, this is not in any way, shape or form to sweep under the rug some of the unbiblical responses to all of this that we see even in the evangelical world. I'm not saying that we should uh, just uh, shrug our shoulders at poor thinking or unbiblical thinking as it regards these matters. But I wanted to take some time today to uh, to talk about that experience a little bit and and mostly uh, Gabe to hear from you and your own experience as there will still be many of course uh, we, we see it in, in politics we see it in some of the angst that's expressed uh, in our culture 
uh, regarding racism mm-hmm. and racial inequality and these kinds of things. To, to hear from you as someone that I uh, deeply respect in terms of the way you've been able to, you and Alicia uh, together have been able to live at peace uh, in the midst of a majority white congregation mm-hmm. and to show true devotion and love to your white brothers and sisters in Christ, to not hold animosity or anger or bitterness um, against uh the white person as it were um, because of this history and and how you are are uh, able uh, to respond in that way as a Christian man mm-hmm. and, and and your wife your dear wife is a Christian uh, woman and the first place that we uh, visited um, was the 16th Street Baptist Church uh, in in downtown Montgomery And, uh, of course, those who would know their history would know that on Sunday, September 15, 1963, uh, some members of the local Ku Klux Klan chapter had planted a bomb Mm -hmm. uh, at this uh, all-black church. And um, when the bomb went off, uh, four uh, girls, uh, three of them 14 years old, uh, Addie Mae Collins, 14 years old, Cynthia Wesley, 14 years old, Carol Robertson, 14 years old, and Carol Denise McNair uh, were all uh, walking in that part of the building when the explosion took place, and they were all uh, killed. Uh, They were there at church. If I remember correctly, there was a special youth Sunday that Sunday, and um, there were 22 others that were injured, and... um, just a, a, a horrible act of terrorism and racism. And um, sadly, uh, the authorities shrugged their shoulders at this, which is one of the most terrible things about these kinds of injustices that took place was in addition to the murders, you had the justice system turning a blind eye uh, to these acts of, of terrorism and, and atrocity. Um, the next uh, place we went to was the, the Rosa Parks Museum and the, the, the courageous um, uh, uh, act of Rosa Parks on the, on the bus on December 1st, 1955. Why don't you tell us a little, a little bit about that, Gay? Yeah, sure. So uh, most of you probably know that early in the 20th century, around 1900 or so, uh, Montgomery had passed a ordinance to segregate the passengers uh, of their uh, bus system and you've seen this probably in popular depictions where you had the first four rows of the seats that are reserved for whites and then you had the back seats or for the colored population meaning blacks in this case and if you've never kind of been in in any sort of historical reenactment of this but what actually happened is that black people would go onto the bus they have to pay a fare, then get out the bus, walk to the back, go through the back entrance. So it's deliberately meant to basically convey a message that you have to pay the same amount as everyone else does, but you don't get to sit here. You have to go out the bus, go back to the back, and sit behind kind of a cage or a kind of a fenced-in area here. And so for decades, numerous people basically knew it was unfair. Black people knew that was unfair, but... This is one of those situations where it's the cost of rebelling against this worth the retaliation that will happen. And numerous people would say they just gave in and just accepted it as being normal. And the popular story of Rosa Parks probably isn't told correctly. Most people think Rosa Parks was, she had a really long day of work and she was tired and just didn't feel like getting up from the seat. And then it kind of blew up. (laughs) No, it's not quite what happened. For those who have never read her autobiography, it's called My Story. She talks about this in there Mm. where she was physically tired. It was a long day of work. But for her, she basically understood that this is an issue of giving in. She wasn't an old, old woman. She was 42 at this time. So this isn't an old woman who just didn't have the strength to get up. She was deliberately resisting. Now... There were people around her, other black people who went to the back of the bus and all that sort of stuff, but she resisted. And then you know how the scene escalates. 
is that they confront her. Uh, you know what you need to do. You need to get out this seat. Even though there's a seat empty right here, you need to get out this seat and go to the back of the bus. And she refuses to do so. And basically, she's taken out and arrested. And after she's arrested, they basically push her around. They do the sort of things that police did to black people at that time. And she was charged with violating the Montgomery City Code. And at this point, you had enough, um, Rosa Parks had enough connections with uh, the NAACP at that point to actually make this complaint go beyond just an individual person fighting City Hall. This is now a microcosm of how Montgomery is for black people. And that's when you begin to see the collaboration uh, for the actual Montgomery bus boycott and things that follow thereafter. Yes. So it's a, it's one of those great stories of American history uh, that knowing what will happen to you, you still refuse to cave in because as Rosa Parks herself admits, she was tired of essentially paying what everyone else pays, getting treated in a very different way and basically being disrespected along the way. And that's the beginnings of the mobilizing effort for the Montgomery bus boycott that goes on. And then you see the blossoming of the movement as a whole. So th thank you for that, Gabe. So we, we went um, from the 16th Street Baptist Church uh, to the Rosa Parks Museum mm -hmm. and then to what was uh, the most disturbing mm -hmm. site, the National Memorial for peace and justice, hmm. which is also known as the National Lynching Memorial. Hmm. The National Lynching Memorial. Uh, what some of our listeners uh, may not know is that more than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children were hanged, burned alive, shot, drowned, and beaten to death by white mobs and, let me add, individuals between 1877 and 1950. Probably those numbers are low. Millions uh, of people fled. Uh, small town, small southern towns uh, to flee this persecution. They left as refugees, uh, fleeing this uh, racial uh, terrorism. And um, and this memorial, it, it tells the story of this. Um, uh, it was very moving to walk through these uh, large slabs, which are some of them coming from the ground, some of them hanging. Have you been, Gabe, to the memorial? Yeah. Yes. As you walk through, you, you, you read the county of a southern state, and then the names uh, and dates of various uh, African Americans who were who were lynched, and in one part of the memorial, you have little stories of the reasons why people were lynched. Mm -hmm. One sticks in my mind that a lady had gone to buy some grain, and she uh, was questioning how much the grain cost because someone else had received the same grain before her for a certain amount and she was being charged a little bit more than that and she had simply questioned that mm -hmm. and was beaten to death on the spot mm -hmm. and uh, there was no justice uh, this person would walk away uh, without any um, justice and so you know uh, county after county after county with names, uh, lists of names, mostly in uh, Georgia and Mississippi mm -hmm. and Alabama, um, uh, where people had been uh, lynched by by mobs, sometimes by by individuals. And uh, so, as we as a group um, experienced this, we. Uh, went back to the house at night where we were all staying and we talked for several hours mm -hmm. and prayed together. And 
really mostly heard from our our black brothers who are fellow ministers in the in the PCA about um, the the pain that they have felt in the past that they still continue to feel the questions that they have in their hearts um, but their deep deep desire to have true um, fellowship with their white brothers mm-hmm. that the, the the church is to be one Amen. and how do we break through the uh, angst and the anger and the pain that still is there, not just in our average neighbor's heart, but in so many Christians' hearts who are trying to, in their minds, deal with the pain of things that happened to their grandparents and their parents. Grandparents, some grandparents or great-grandparents who were actually enslaved mm-hmm. and then parents or grandparents who went through the, the civil rights movement and were treated so terribly uh, by uh, the government, by segregation, Jim Crow laws and these kinds of things. And so, Gabe, really I wanted to kind of just open up um, this this discussion as I have shared briefly about uh, our time together and the moving experience um, to to be uh, in these memorials uh, to read the names of those who were were lynched uh, to read about the amazing courage of Rosa Parks and mm-hmm. Luther King and others who made a stand. Um, I, I actually on the airplane. I think it was back from England a couple weeks ago. I I watched um, Selma, oh, uh, that yeah. movie, and uh, um, was was sobbing at the end of it when King was giving his his mm-hmm. speech in the the Capitol steps in Montgomery, which I, mm-hmm. I was just there. Yeah, and um, man, he could preach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He could preach. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I just wanted to say, Gabe, uh, it, it, all of this that I have learned has given me a much deeper respect for you and Alicia to be able to uh, deal with all of this and, and come to a place where you can worship in a majority white congregation and do so not because of sociology mm-hmm. and not because of psychology, but because of theology and because of the gospel and how you've applied that gospel. Um, and so I want to open it up to you, Gabe, to say, uh, talk to us about kind of your walking through all of this as a, as a Christian um, and uh, how you would encourage uh, others perhaps who are uh, black believers and working through uh, all of this. So uh, I'll start first with kind of a background on myself and I've talked about this a little bit on a previous podcast here, but it's been a couple of years. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that was influential in my conversion was to, to think about evil. And at the time uh, of my conversion, the question I continually pondered was how could such grotesque evil exist among people? Mm. And, there are multiple examples and so when I was in high school in world history you saw the evil of kind of the international scene where you had multiple wars that were catastrophic upon nations Um, you had multiple different conflicts that occurred in sub-Saharan Africa and and world history courses so you read those sort of things in 11th grade we did US history and I was fortunate because my U.S. history uh, teacher, she didn't just go by the book because the book basically glosses over most of the South. It basically says the Civil War happened, Reconstruction happened, Jim Crow happened, and then the Civil Rights Movement happened. No details whatsoever. Mm. And at the time, I thought that was a, a disservice to the whole issue But my particular teacher said, no, we're going to study a good portion of the South. And that's when I started um, hearing about more of the details of what happened basically from the late Reconstruction, so 1880s to 
1960s. So that Jim Crow, post-reconstruction Jim Crow era. And one of the things that struck me at the time, and it has continued to strike me today when I think about the matter, is the massive indifference that was seen by numerous people. Mm. And Dr. King and numerous people have the quotes that there is, it's one thing to have active hostility against the people. What's another thing to overlook injustice? And that's a... That's a different sort of callousness that is hard to really understand and hard to really interpret in a lot of ways. And all you can say is that it's evil. There's evil in the hearts of people. And that evil can be self-interested, such as you have a lynching, you have multiple lynching situations where white men lynch black men because they perhaps winked at their white wives. So it can be that type of self-interested domination or it can be self-interest where you know that if you were to stand up for a black person being lynched, that means you're going to get worse treatment. And there's the expression that you know occurs in the South. The only thing worse than a bleep is a someone who loves such a person. Yeah. Um, and that is the other part of lynching. Uh, one of the things that I learned in uh, U.S. history was that about... Uh, 10 to 15% of lynching, lynchings occurred towards white people who defended black people. So there's right. terrorism in both directions. Right. So there's the terrorism in a sense of where you know where your place should be if you're the black person. Mm-hmm. and But also, if you even have a remote affection, you also know that you may be along the same lines. Mm-hmm. So... But perhaps the biggest difference for me than probably most people today is that I've wrestled through this in high school. And so there wasn't the Internet really around. There wasn't social media wasn't where it was. So that means I never had the position of basically trying to process my strong feelings in a public form. Yes. That never happened. The only way I can process is by talking to a teacher, talking to my parents, right. and talking to some of my uncles who gave me a lot of black uh, literature. So the fortunate thing is that my processing occurred privately um, and with family. But mm-hmm. the reality is that it's it's still just as real. When you see an actual depiction or the after effects of a lynching and you've never seen it before, it jars your senses. Oh my goodness. Probably the... the uh, the best example of this that's not related to black people is if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum, it's the same thing. If you never heard of the Holocaust or well, it's not possible, if you never really thought much about it and then went to the Holocaust Museum, you would be in tears. You would be floored at what went on. Um, that's the and, way it is. The lynching museum. Yeah, yeah, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. It's the images that matter. It sticks to you. Yeah. And that is the part that's hard to process. And so... My family, uh, I was raised right outside of Atlanta. And so a routine thing of my childhood was going on MLK Day. We went down to Ebenezer Baptist Church and we went through the Martin Luther King Center. And a lot of these themes were kind of repeated, but in different contexts. And so uh, I've, I've grown up with it. I've grown up with the knowledge of it. I've read a lot of the historical narratives about it uh, before. I've also heard a lot of the justifications for it which is just as disturbing as seeing the events themselves. Um, probably the most influential thing I've read was seeing George Wallace's discussion on this mm-hmm. entire topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't really need to discuss more about him. So wicked. Very wicked man when it comes to um, this entire discussion. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, for me, when it comes to matters of the church, and this is kind of where I like to drive on the topic uh, primarily. Um, what strongly influenced me about the actual real nature of this discussion was that there were apparently non-black people who were willing to die for this discussion. And meaning there are a number of people who were lynched because of this, yes. a number of people whose houses were being bombed and bricks and rocks thrown through in the same way as uh, black civil rights leaders. And I saw, you know, you see some of those, uh, you see the literature about it where um, a white family will say, we will gladly partner with you because we see this as the same thing you do. I have empathy for you in this sense. 
And so that means in my head, and this was my teenage years, that this isn't a universal white person problem. That's right. And it's a large problem for a number of people apparently in the South of that era, but there are a large number of people who are willing to take the blows for it. Uh, so, so it's not a whiteness problem. It's, yeah. It's a problem that a lot of white people had. Yeah. And yeah. have. Currently. But not. And that. It's not about having white skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's just a given. And to well, me, that. It's not, to, yeah, it's not it's a not, given to yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, it was a given as a teenager. You know, I saw that. So yeah. the Civil Rights Movement was not solely black people marching. Because it would have never gotten off the ground without other support. It's just financially and all the other things that was required. And it's quite happen. moving at this in the Selma march mm-hmm. from Selma to Montgomery, yeah. and um, you had a lot of white people coming from all over the country to yeah. march exactly uh, with their black brothers and sisters, and it's yeah. quite moving. And mm-hmm. a lot of them were, as you say, beaten up. Yeah, uh, right, right along with everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And so. There's that aspect. Second aspect that uh, most people think about is the argument goes, well, the people who probably marched with those in some were probably of the liberal, uh, liberal politically and liberal theologically. That's usually what the claim is in some way or fashion. And I hear it pretty often. So, you know, the way the way it appears is that the conservative ministers who are white generally agreed with the Klan versus the liberals of the North and also some in the South and the West more or less agreed. And that's why in some way or fashion, uh, you have to have people outside of the South coming in to basically bolster the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And that's a long standing narrative. It's a narrative I strongly disagree with for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. But the, the principal reason that I disagree with it is because um, when I was a kid, uh, we all heard about the L.A. riots. And the L.A. riots are not a Southern problem. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. And the reality is that... Not Louisiana. <laughs> Los Angeles. The Los Angeles riots. <laughs> and, you know, I was a kid. I remember seeing the images of Rodney King and seeing all those things happen. And now, uh, at the time, a lot of people like me who were in the South, we had no idea that... Uh, as a kid, that this sort of treatment was going on outside the South. We just thought that was a Southern problem. And then we saw what's going on in L.A. and also northern cities, Chicago, Detroit, and Baltimore. The, there's these huge problems. And so, in one sense, it's not purely a Southern problem. The mistreatment is in various parts of the country. Yes. And that means that, you know, it can't just purely be a Southern problem. And it's not just purely a white problem. There's something real going on regarding the actual views of people and blacks and things of that nature. And then there's also the other stuff I learned also just in terms of my own reading on how other ethnicities and nationalities are treated. So I think about um, the friends I had who were Vietnamese, Japanese, and Chinese, the way they were treated basically after the Second World War. Their parents have the same sort of anger and hostility as my parents and grandparents did because of the internment camps and all the other things that went on. And so the racism is real. And that's that's just the basic point. It's a real problem. And one of the things that comes out from that is that you have to, therefore, think about what's going on in the human heart. And that what led me to in my own conversion to think about um, this seems spread abroad there's a lot of there's evil all all over the place there's greater evils than some less than others but it's still there and that's what led me to ponder the question of evil and that led me to other questions concerning the gospel but in terms of kind of the other parts of discussion um my most immediate advice i give all people when they kind of come to their awakening i think that's the best way to say it if you were a black guy who didn't care about history and all of a sudden you're just approached with factual matters concerning the treatment of blacks in the South and other places in the country, your immediate response is going to basically be a rising of anger, hostility, and a seeking of justice. Sure. You basically have a vengeance mentality in your heart. And at that point, um, 
I think it is sound to basically tell that person you should not basically do this publicly. You need to have someone who will walk with you about these matters. Because the worst thing that has happened in the social media world mm-hmm. is that people with legitimate pain is are processing the pain in public. And we know how social media works. Social media is basically a bunch of anonymous people attacking you. And you think it's personal people. Like you think it's people like next door to you or down the street to you or the church next to you. It's anonymous people on social yeah. media attacking you. And then there are people, you know, they these are real people and because they don't know you, they think that you're just basically a political person who just wants to promote a political agenda and they will attack you on a non sequitur, basically. Oh, yeah. And that's the other issue. And that's why I say for you your own sake, it's best for you not to even be online if that's your problem. <laughs> yeah. If you're wrestling through it, um, I would say uh, this is a good time to log off and find someone who has already walked the path of you. Yeah, and especially we're speaking here in the context of a Christian, yeah. right? And so as a, as a Christian uh, man or woman who is working through this history, mm-hmm. who is trying to deal with the emotions mm-hmm. and the pain, um, that needs to be done in the context of of uh, a biblical church mm-hmm. with with biblical counselors and pastors and elders and friends who uh, can walk with you through that biblically. Yeah, um, exactly. Because uh, at one point, of course, um, there needs to be a reckoning, doesn't there, of <laughs> of the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and. Uh, the forgiveness and the mercy of God mm-hmm. and, and how all this relates to the gospel. So, so as, we, as we come to you know, the place, Gabe, where you are able to, to be at mm-hmm. peace with this, how does that relate to the gospel and what the Lord has done for you and, yeah, and in yeah. you by, by His grace? So one of the issues that comes up often is that uh, one way to say is that the answer is simple but it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's simple because we know what the answer is. We know that when it comes to dealing with legitimate issues of grievance and issues of offense and also just issues of man, we know that you, know, you can quote First Peter 3 that Jesus Christ is your example. He is the one who, when reviled himself, did not revile back. We know his example. Mm-hmm. We also know that in Jesus' parables, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your sins. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all know those passages there. And one of the things that comes out in this discussion is we're going from now the head now to the heart. Because the issue is, have you forgiven your brother from your heart? So in that sense, that's the difficulty. The difficulty is making the emotional aspects that you have, which are based on legitimate problems, line up in accord to scripture. And from that point, that's where the counseling aspect goes. That's where the gospel penetrates into the heart of the sinner. Because there are many brothers who will affirm everything we just said, and then will still basically make a claim that that doesn't excuse what happened. And no one is debating that. But the reality is that when the gospel penetrates your heart, it makes you do things you thought you could never do <laughs> at any point in time. And there are numerous people who have this as their testimony. And so uh, this is true, black and white people. Right. Um, there are a number of black pastors who basically in the 1980s were wrestling with this topic um, because the 1980s also was still a problematic era for race relations, depending on primarily in the South. And they've walked through this and had the gospel pressed upon their conscience, pressed upon their hearts, and now they can actually counsel people legitimately about it. But it takes years for that to happen for some people. And that is what is expected. The answer is simple. We know that the gospel is the only means to transform the sinner. But we also know sanctification is very slow. (laughs) And thus... We should expect in a very natural sense that for those who have, if this is kind of your awakening. So I'll take an example of recent history. 
Trayvon Martin case was a lot of people's awakening to some of these things, mm-hmm. right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were triggered by the Trayvon Martin case, you're now about a decade off from that. And there was a lot of wrestling that needs to happen mm-hmm. if you suddenly started to have hostility towards brothers and sisters in Christ. If you haven't dealt with that yet, that's something that you will have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. And you should expect it to take it a while, but you also should be aware that other people are not as forgiving and other people will yeah. shoot off at the mouth at you for basically believing liberal propaganda, so to speak. Right. And your job is at this point to recognize that they don't speak for everyone. They don't speak for the public. Right. They speak for themselves and their ignorance. Right. And hence, you deal with the reality of what you know is going on in your heart, yeah. which means if it ever gets to a point where you say in your heart that I cannot and will not forgive a brother in Christ or any person for their transgressions, that's when you have a problem. Yes. And you know at that point, you need to cry out to the Lord and get counseling for it. And so in that sense, uh, that to me is the most immediate thing a person should think about is there are a lot of people right now online who... Uh, basically became what we call today woke about seven years ago. And that means they are now wrestling with things that take years to get through. And that means there should be patience. There should be understanding. There should be compassion. doesn't mean you're just excusing them to sin, but it does mean I'm going to walk with you through this because this is very, very difficult. And because... Depending upon where you were raised, you may not have any experience with this whatsoever. This may be new to you as well. And the reality is that if you're walking through this for the first time with someone, there's going to be some friction that happens. There's some difficulties that happen. But at the end of the day, that's what you know you have to get to. And the only power of salvation that accomplishes that is the gospel. Pressing it upon every portion of of your life. And and we do that, don't we? Not because we want to be one in Christ, but because we are we one are. in Christ. That's right. Uh, united to Christ, we are members of the body, and, mm-hmm. and thus uh, we have this um, this relationship with one another that is that is bound fast by the gospel. Mm-hmm. And our expressions of unity and love and being intentional with one another uh, in our relationships is, is an expression of that unity, which is already ours in Christ. Um, and um, that's, you know, that's a large part of the problem, I think, is that we uh, will often hold, um, will allow uh, racist uh, uh divisive um, tendencies to exist in our hearts, unrepented of, unmortified, and those things fester that could be in the heart of a white person or the heart of a black person towards one another. And uh, the goal here ultimately is, um, is to see true unity in the church between black and white Christians, whether we're in the same congregation or not is Mm. I'm not really speaking about that as much as, I mean, that that's good and we Mm. want that, but, but that there would be that true spirit of unity in Mm. the hearts of that. We'd have that, you know, reformed Catholicity as it were, Mm. that, that we would understand that those who are, have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation and believe the gospel that whatever church you're involved in that we would hold each other in high esteem and love one another and be intentional with one another and go out of our way to be kind and and thoughtful encouraging towards one another and to build each other up um, no matter what the color of our skin or our backgrounds and uh, so there are different ways that different churches will, will go about doing yeah. that um, and different areas where that m- makes, you know, it's pretty obvious, mm-hmm. you know, um, what needs to happen. But um, a couple of other things please. to say real quick. So this is to black brothers and white brothers. And so my first warning is to be aware of being manipulated in this discussion. Yeah. So. 
like most Americans, once this has become a political discussion, it now leaves the direct interaction between brothers and now goes into a different sphere in politics. And both sides do not believe that a Republican politician actually thinks, not all of them think in their heart that they are doing the right thing. They know they are stoking your particular biases for their benefit. Mm -hmm. So you should be aware of that. You should be aware of the fact that there are politicians who gain from your indifference to this discussion. And on the other side, you should be aware of politicians who benefit from you being angered by this discussion. You should be aware of the manipulation that occurs on both sides of the aisle on this issue. Which you'd find its probably greatest manifestation on CNN and Fox News, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Major networks. And so an advice that I give uh, some brothers is you kind of know who those people are. I don't really have Mm -hmm. to tell you the names of these people. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they stand up and start to talk, you feel anger coming up in your heart about something and you know it's not necessarily directly connected to anything related to the church or related to actual flesh and blood people turn it off (laughs) just turn it off and the other way around is true if you feel yourself getting angered at the supposed liberals around you because you know a couple of talk radio people basically said they're trying to take over america and make everyone communist or socialist and you feel that anger coming up and making you basically distance yourself from your brothers turn it off uh it's your responsibility to make sure that you're not being easily manipulated yeah let's make it clear these networks these politicians they're almost never thinking through the lenses oh, no, of scripture definitely not they're almost never thinking through the lenses of 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 the glory of Christ and mm-hmm. and the the body of Christ and the the pursuit of of true gospel unity mm-hmm. uh, in the life of the church and 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 so that these are wise words mm-hmm. that there is a large political theater mm-hmm. um, where the Republicans and the Democrats are all vying for votes yeah. and um, that the discourse has become profoundly. Uh, uncivil, mm-hmm. uh, where now you're having politicians regularly cursing at each other on mm-hmm. public television and yeah. uh, in, 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 in public environments, and not that they should be doing it in private either, but there's just a kind of complete loss of all mm-hmm. civility in, in mm-hmm. politics. And the race question is is a big part of that discussion, which has mm-hmm. be- become far more heat than light yeah right exactly far, far less reason and 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 more uh, irrationality mm-hmm. uh, and and seeking to stir up their base mm-hmm. to throw red meat to their base so that they can you know gain more votes and get a bigger voting block um these are wise words yeah and then last thing i'll just say just in in uh, closing about it let's take the example of Lynching. Let's let's you know focus on that particular part here. One of the things that everyone should be aware of is the intention of what lynching was for. It was mm-hmm. clearly meant to be a intimidation and fear tactic, and what that means is that psychologically, the intention is to put it in your head that you should be afraid, and that you should know your place. That's the intention of it. Right. And that means if anyone was ever a product of it, meaning they had lynching occur in their family or something of that nature, that is the fear that's coming in their mind. So there's a lot of ways that fear comes out. And there's a lot of ways in which, you know, the modern language should be you're triggered by it, meaning you can take a a shooting that occurred by a cop uh, to a black kid and that can trigger all of those things with the visual hostility. And so this is a beware uh, issue. Beware of the reality that the things that you are seeing today may not at all be connected to what happened in the past. <laughs> those are not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. You're remembering things because the fear is real. But the reality is that, and this is something that should be admitted, is that things have changed substantially. 
you know, we can talk as much as we want about what the Klan was doing in the 1880s through the 1960s. The Klan was live and active, and we knew that they were members of churches and pastors of churches who were part of the Klan. The reality is that that doesn't happen anymore. That era has been gone for some time, and that means you should not interpret everything through that lens. No matter very wise. how much it feels that way. These are different types of things. And that means you should never think of your, you know, you should never think of your society around you. If you're living in most places that this is just like racism of the same type, just repackaged. Mm-hmm. We're not back at that era anymore. Mm-hmm. Things have changed for much better, much, 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 much better. And so an example I give is I am a I have a doctorate in a science field and I went through my entire education without a single amount of hostility because I am the lone black person in multiple different programs. That did not happen at any point before basically the 1950s. If you were the lone black person in the program in the 1950s, we know how you were treated. Mm. We know they thought you were inferior. We know they thought you couldn't do the work. We know they wouldn't even they wouldn't even answer your questions because they knew you couldn't understand the material. We know that was the past. The reality is that we live in a time where there are still numerous sorts of stereotyping and at times just wrong-headed thinking, but we don't live in the violent racist eras of post-reconstruction Jim Crow era. To think that you do means that you're still living with that image of lynching in your mind. Yes. And one of the things that the counselor does is that he teaches you, he or she teaches you that your memory is real, but your memories can distort the present and how you interpret it. Mm. So it's your job to kind of understand that. You may have the memories in your head from what you've seen or what your family has experienced. But that doesn't mean that you are interpreting reality correctly. Mm. And that's a lesson on both sides, but primarily for my black brothers here, that the memories are real. We all have family members who were sprayed of hoses, probably, Uh, particularly if you lived in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina. You've had that happen to you Mm. and your family. We don't live there anymore. And that's the first step in a lot of ways to reconciling those feelings in your heart Mm. is that you can't change the past it happened and it's a scar there but the reality is not the the present is not the same as the past Mm. and that's something you should rejoice in and because that is the case you can actually you should think in yourself because the present is not the past we actually have a much greater likelihood of actually getting to know people and their stories and their life and all these other things that happened so my example personally is, you know, again, I wrestled through these things as a teenager. So I've had, I'm 35 now, I've had 15 years to wrestle, 20 years to wrestle with these sort of things. And by the time that most of you all met me in Christchurch, I've already been under the factory of the Holy Spirit for 17 years. <laughs> so, and that is the reality of your sanctification. It takes a while, but the results are real and they are measurable in a sense. They're palpable. You can sense them. And no point in time was there ever an issue where the flashback in my mind of seeing a lynching or a hanging coming to mind and coming to Christ church. And then what happens is that that means you can now remove the first barrier, which is your hostility, and then talk to the people around you. And then confirm, and they confirm it largely, meaning mm-hmm. the people around you are not the people of the clan era who told you to get in the back of the bus and know your place. Yeah. That's not them anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are now people who will lovingly mm-hmm. embrace you in the church. And so that's my encouragement is that the present is not the past, no matter how much you think it looks like it. It's not the past. Amen. Amen. So encouraging, uh, brother. We just uh, love you and Alicia and the girls uh, very mm-hmm. much and are so thankful the Lord brought you to Christ Church. And uh, these discussions are um, very rich and very meaningful um, and important, I think, for our church to hear. 
and any others who may be listening in, I want to uh, conclude by uh, reading uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, of course, particularly speaking of the bringing together of the Jews and the Gentiles, but uh, relating this to uh, any groups that might have hostility towards one another for any reason, and certainly there is that in our own day um, through the differences of and uh, the history between blacks and whites or various ethnicities around the world, because we have these same kinds of things happening in different parts of the world uh, in different people groups where there is long-standing historical animosity mm-hmm. and in Christ we are called to be one mm-hmm. we are one and we are called to be one and so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 18 for through him that is through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the father So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then, of course, In chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so the Lord has uh, made us one. And so may we celebrate that unity in the gospel. May we recognize that we are all made in the image of God and uh, in Christ we are part of one body and called to exercise that unity and love with intentionality and purpose, even as we discussed in our last program regarding healthy church membership and being actively involved in one another's lives. And so may the Lord receive all the glory uh, from this discussion and may he use it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Between the Times. We hope you will join us for our next episode.